The year was 1990 or 1991, and I was the proud owner of the first chair in my trumpet line in band. The world was going to be taken over by my sweet renditions of Hot Cross Buns and Pikes Peak March. Um, it was me and my trumpet case, man. That was it. I was going to take over the world. Um, but that way of living did not last long for me. Um, I developed a close friendship with a CD group of tuba and trombone players, um, which may have been the beginning of my meteoric fall from greatness as a first chair trumpeter. Uh, they began to get the best of me, and I slowly gave up my chair. I was losing my grip on the first chair, second chair, third chair, fourth chair, fifth chair, and then eventually rock bottom, last chair, trumpet player in my seventh grade band. Um, at least I was closest to my friends, though. Um, not only was I closest to my friends, I was also closest to the percussion session, section, um, the bass drum, the snare, the xylophone, the cymbals, and what turned out to be the pinnacle of my downfall, the uh, Latin cabasa shaker. Uh, and if you've never seen one of these, this is what it looks like. Um, during one of our drum section's solos, this kibasa was being shook and or hand-rolled or whatever, whatever you do with it. And for some reason, the hypnotic sound of the shh began to take over something in me. I'm not sure why I did what I did next. Well, no, I am sure. I know exactly why I did it, because I thought I was hilarious. Um, but my arm began to move and began to, like, scratch parts of me in time with the Latin kibasa shaker. Now, very immature seventh grade Jason here. I would never do this today. But my arm found its way to my posterior in time to the Latin kibasa shaker. I began to make eye contact with everyone in the band going I slayed that day my friends I was on fire the band could not wait for the drum section to get to their solos, not because they cared about the band solos, but because they wanted to see Jason live at the improv, and no shame was worn that day upon me. It was my moment. It was my moment. Like, I had no fear. I was completely sold to the role of comedian in my class. But little did I know, Mr. DeRacy, our conductor was not only standing there conducting, but he was observing his once star student. He was losing me, and he knew it. He was losing his influence on me, and little did I know, he observed all of it. I mean, it's hard not to notice it when your entire band is laughing out loud, and you're killing it, if you will. He calls me into his office, and he... Uh, shuts the door and he sits across the table from me like this, never forget it, looking over his knuckles. He says, Jason, 
Who do you think you are? Do you think you're Bill Cosby, Sinbad, Carrot Top? You think you're selling out stadiums? You think you're a comedian? I sat silent, did not answer. He said, someday you may sell out stadiums with your comedic routines, but not this day, son. You are in my band class and you will act accordingly. Do you got me? That was the end of my band career, really. Because on that day and many days after, I thought I was a comedian. I uh, made the most of my days in middle school and high school making people laugh. That was my goal. And it was one of those things where it, was, it didn't matter to me if it was an appropriate time to make people laugh or an inappropriate time. I just thought I was funny. And because I thought I was funny, I did all those things. You, you're not very different from me. You may not think yourself a comedian. You may not think yourself whatever. But I can guarantee you that because of who you think you are, actions come from that. Because of who you can, you're convinced that you are, your actions reflect that. Because of who you may even be pretending to be, your actions reflect that. Who we are, or who we think we are, drives what we do. All day long, every day, every week, every month, every year. In 1 John, John does not just tell the church to love. If you've been reading through 1 John, you have probably seen John over and over and over command the church to love. See, in the scripture, love is not an option. It is actually a command. And I know we kind of like to put options on things, but love is commanded of believers. And so John talks a lot about church, love. But just as much as he spends time saying love, he also says, church, you are loved. Both equally important, both equally a part of the believer's life, believing and understanding that God has loved us informs our love, both our love to God, with God, for God, and our love this way. John doesn't just say, hey, church, get busy loving. He says, hey, church, you are loved. And if you don't know this, you will not love. If you don't know this, you will put parameters around your love. You will pick and choose who's deserving of your love. You will make decisions about whether or not you feel like loving because it becomes about you. But if it truly is God's love flowing towards us, as we'll see in just a moment, it changes everything about love. John opens this portion of his letter in, in chapter 4. He says, hey, dear friends, here's some good news. You don't have to believe everything someone says when they say they speak for God. Isn't that amazing? Like, that's so freeing to not have to believe everything someone says. Did you know you have that freedom? Did you know that you have the freedom to go, 
I think you're lying. When someone plays the God told me card, we have the opportunity to go, I don't know that he said that. Do you know that you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you and that allows us what is known as discernment? Listen to John's description, chapter 4, starting in verse 2. This is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Did you hear that? Did you hear that if someone claims to be speaking for God, but they do not acknowledge Jesus as the Jesus of Scripture, then they do not speak for God? This is so controversial. These are hard words for us to hear because we know people who are very spiritual, right? We know people who are very religious. But John is saying to the church, if they don't recognize Jesus from the scriptures as Jesus is recorded for us to know, you and I need to be going, hmm, hmm. I don't know. I don't know that if I agree with what they're saying. I don't know why I don't agree. Well, mate, well it's the spirit of God going, halt, hold up, looky here. Sit and discern. There is much more being implied here than just, than just a guy or a gal with the right wording. Just because they talk a good Jesus game does not mean they are about Jesus. Statements can be made, but if words and lives don't add up, this is the gift of discernment that the Holy Spirit has placed in anyone who confesses that Jesus is who he says he is. The gift of being able to not take everyone's words and go, wait a minute, Jesus, your words matter most. Let's look here. Someone says, when someone says, God told me, you can go, I don't necessarily know if I'm hearing from him that way. I don't know that that might, that might not be right. Let me go to his word. Let me go to other believers. And let's sit down and discern together. Discernment is just sound judgment which can judge good from evil. Discernment is recognizing God's right ways for his people. The beauty of this is that we understand more and more what's in here, but we also understand how what's in here comes out of our lives. This is the gift of being his child, knowing truth from a lie. But you and I cannot know what is true if we do not know truth. This is why we say spending time anchored in God's word matters most. And I'm not just talking about how we scroll through our iPhones, how we scroll through a feed, how we scroll through. That's what we think of when we think of reading. We just go like this. But the scripture is described as a place of meditation. I meditate on his word day and night. I meditate and focus on and think on his words when I wake up in the morning and when I go to bed at night. This is how we begin to know truth. And if you don't spend time here and somehow believe you have the spirit of discernment because you have a feeling, you could be in very dangerous territory. 
the beauty of the gift of the Spirit of God dwelling in His children is that He will help us know right from wrong, truth from lies, and which way to go that honors Him. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, this is what He says. He says, But you belong to God. My dear children, you have already won a victory over those people, the false teachers, because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. John is saying there has been a past event in history, in time, that has happened that has changed your present day. This is not, as Miss Sue was saying, a fairy tale, a myth, a fable, in the likings of of Greek or Zeus or or of Greek or Roman uh, mythology, all of these things. He is saying there is an action point in history that has changed how you look at the present. You have already won the victory over those false teachers. So when you see on YouTube or Facebook or Google or Instagram or Snap or all of these other social media forms. Now we have so much access to false teaching, it's ridiculous. Now, as a pastor, I have to deal with a pastor uh, on the other side of the world, influencing people that sit in Asheville, North Carolina, forming false views in them. This isn't like it's just in the neighborhood, because we have phones and computers, now everything's the neighborhood. Now more than ever, we need to know that spirit of discernment and what is true, what is right, what is good, what is noteworthy, what is praise, uh, praiseworthy and honorable. All the things that the scripture says we will know because the spirit of God dwells in us. It's not because we're smarter. I'm not smarter than anyone else. But it's because I'm his child. I'll know his voice. I'll know what is true. I'll know what is right for God's people. Not because I'm more educated, but because we as the body of Christ and the children of God want to know these things. Firstly, we know we are His because we know right from wrong. We know truth from lies. We know who to listen to and we know who to ignore. Secondly, though, there is a a second evidence of belonging to God. And we have talked about it every week in John, in 1 John. And that is your love for your fellow believer. Listen to verse 15. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in His love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. I want to stop right there. Isn't it good to know that even you in this room right now going, I'm terrible at loving. This doesn't seem like it's for me because I'm awful at it. Isn't it good to know that John said, as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. Some of you in this room are awful at receiving love. Some of you in this room are awful at showing love. And to know that God addresses both groups of people through his love for us. As we live in God, we actually grow more perfect in our love. So if you're saying, man, I am terrible at loving, good. You don't have it right. You're not perfect at it. As we read 1 Corinthians 13, I know we all are like, yeah, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Love is patient, love is kind. I get that. No, you don't. We don't get it. We're terrible at it. But the power of the, of the God of the universe putting on flesh, living among us, dying and raising from the dead to return causes our love to grow more perfect. John's not expecting perfection. In fact, in fact he speaks against it. He says, when you do sin, like it's a given, when you do, you have an advocate. But he's also saying that people who know the love of God, they will not make a practice of sinning. They won't just walk around going, man, my aim is to get better at sinning. My aim is to get better at sinning. Because that's what practice is, right? Like you just want to get better at something. You want to make something permanent in your life. You practice it. John says, look, people who understand the love of God do not make a practice of sinning. They practice righteousness, which is also a good thing to know, that it's practice. (laughs) But this is the power of knowing the love of God in Christ Jesus. He continues, he says, So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear. Because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. John is not just saying, hey, church, love. John is saying, hey, church, you are loved. You've been loved. You are loved. And something changes in a person's heart and mind when they understand this at the core of who they are. By this we will know, and and I love that that John uses that phrase, by this we will know. He's saying, here's assurance. If you're like, man, am I in? Do I get it? Do I not? Do I have faith? What does it look like? He ultimately just laid out three things. He said, we'll have his spirit leading us in truth. We'll know right from wrong. We'll know truth from lies. He said that we will confess Jesus as the Son of God. We'll be a people who go, Jesus, I see who you say you are in Scripture. I may not understand it all, but I believe that you are who you say you are. Show me. Help me know that. Help me see that. Help me experience that. And then he says that we will remain in his love. It is not a long list, folks. It is not. It's not like this 8,000 box checklist that you have to walk down to go, am I in? Am I not? I don't know. He said, look, do you, do you claim that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you recognize right and wrong, truth from lies? And are you remaining in his love? We make this a lot more complicated than it really is. But yet, John says it's going to take our whole life to fully understand it. This is the power of knowing the Jesus that is proclaimed in the scriptures. Christ's perfect love obliterates fear in our lives. And I want to make sure I'm clear on that because I'm not just talking about the boogeyman. I'm not just talking about obstacles that are coming your way. I'm actually talking about people that walk in fear of judgment. The judgment. And it makes sense that he writes this to the church because the church is really the only people that understand that judgment is coming, okay? So there's going to be a reason he has to address the fear of judgment in the church. He can't necessarily take it outside the church because people are like, I don't know what that, I don't even know what you're talking about. 
I ain't got no fear. I ain't got nothing on, nothing, nothing on me, nothing wrong with me, nothing on God, nothing, can't do anything. In the church, though, the number of times I have heard people, and actually it's always been in the church, to be quite honest, it's always been people going, I hope I get in. Friends, that's no way to live life. To walk around hoping that you've done enough good or, or you haven't done enough bad to somehow appease the, the judge in the sky. Like, this isn't the way we were created to walk. Listen to his words. Jump, again, verse 17. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So, okay, as it's growing more perfect in us, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence. We can face him with confidence. Why? Because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear. Because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. When we read the scripture, we do read of future judgment. Cannot remove that. Cannot take it out because we don't like how it sounds. Listen to 2 Corinthians. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Hebrews chapter 9 says, And just as each person is destined to die once, folks, we do not believe in reincarnation as Christ followers. We do not believe life is circular. We believe life is linear. It has a start and it has a finish. And Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, listen to this, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly await his return. Sin has been dealt with on the cross. The Christ follower does not look, go walk around going, oh, look busy, Jesus is coming. The Christ follower goes, I cannot wait till Jesus makes his return. I cannot wait till he wraps up this side of eternity. I cannot wait till what I have believed by faith becomes sight. I cannot wait till I am no longer a slave to sin like fully. I cannot wait till salvation that is in me comes and fully is realized. But that's for the one who has known God's perfect love in Christ Jesus. If you're walking in fear, John says, you have not known that perfect love. Or, or as these people may have, forgotten his perfect love. So why do we stay in each other's faces as the church, reminding each other daily of his perfect love for us? Because we are quick to walk away from it. And we are quick to forget it. And we are quick to go lean on some other thing in order to find our hope and our identity. We can be struck with weak knees as we fear judgment. And I do believe there is good reason, too. Because if I believe that somehow my resume is held up before God, God, this is what it'll take for you to accept me, we're actually looking at the cross and going, you know what? I see what you did there for me, but I think what I can compile is probably a better list than what Jesus can do. 
And I'm telling you, you will have a chance to stand before God and hold up your resume. And I'm telling you, it will fall short. But if it is settled on this side of eternity, there is no fear. There is no fear in death because a Christ follower understands that death is, as C.S. Lewis says, the final grace, where what we have believed by faith, we see by sight. But I will tell you, though, it is very difficult to know or to believe that someone completely loves me while I stand in fear that they will reject me. Think about it. If there is a chance that someone may reject you, and if there is a chance that someone may turn you away, how are you in walking with them? Bold and confident in love or fearful? It is the same when it comes to our view of God. I believe we will walk in fear as long as we are convinced that there is a chance God may reject us in eternity. And here's what I've noticed 10 times out of 10 times. is that those who fear rejection from God in eternity have their eyes set on themselves. What have I done and what can I do? those become the primary questions. Rather than going, what has Christ done? What does Christ keep doing? There is a difference in the way you will approach life depending on the questions you ask. First John, he tells us that God's love is perfect towards us. Does not say our perfect love towards God is what removes fear doesn't. It says that his perfect love towards us is what removes fear. Confidence, not that we loved God perfectly, but confidence that God loved us perfectly. In 1933, I want to show you two pictures. Uh, the, the Golden Gate Bridge was starting to be built. And uh, in these initial pictures, if you go ahead and throw it up there, um, the initial pictures you're looking at some of the, the first phases of the Golden Gate Bridge being created. And there were no real safety uh, um, precautions taken. Uh, don't, this is, hold on, go back, go back, go back. There you go. Um, so, yeah, what are, you, are, you, are you all right back there? Okay. Just thought I'd ask. I'm like, no. Um, here you have initial phasings of the Golden Gate Bridge. And in 1933, as things were getting started, um, because there were no safety devices used, there were ropes and little things, but 23 men fell to their death. And there were points on this bridge that were 746 feet above the ocean. And if you've ever been to San Francisco, there's this, this constant breeze and this constant wind, and there were gusts, typically, that they would work in up to 45-mile-an-hour gusts while you'd be standing at that height. Now, if you fall from that height, estimates of hitting the water at 75 miles an hour do not bode well for many survivors who made that fall. But go ahead and move forward and show the next picture. As the bridge was being completed, a large net, which cost about 100 grand to install across this bridge, was installed. 
And it's interesting because there were about 10 men who immediately just fell and were caught by this net. They actually dubbed the survivors who fell from this into this net as the halfway to hell club. Like, these men survived this fall because someone paid a price to anchor a net under where they were working. Now, the beauty that, that the, the, a beautiful result that happened because of this safety and because of this assurance, their, their production went way up because these men were no longer afraid to fall because they saw men falling into the net. And they were like, I can keep working, and if I fall, I fall into the net. If I fall, I fall into the net. If I fall, if I fall into the net. And it was a, it, they, didn't, they didn't calculate that. But because they paid the price, laid the net, set it out, these men walked with more of an assurance as they did their job. Guys, it is the same. Just as these men worked fearlessly when they knew they'd be safe if they fell, so too the believer lives, loves, and works with all their might, knowing that God loved us perfectly. He has removed all fear from judgment, and we remain in that love. But the opposite is true for the one who still lives in fear. It's just the way it works. Which leads me to ask, how will we know that we are perfectly loved? 1 John 4, 9 says this. God showed how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. This is real love. And parents, if I could just pause here for one second. When your children or your teenager comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, how do I know if I'm in love? If you give them, you'll just know in your gut as the answer. I would like to meet with you. That is one of the worst ways you can determine a definition of what real love is. That's the problem with where we're at as a culture. We have no idea what love really looks like. So as a parent, you can take your child to the scriptures and go, Hey, you want to know what love is? Let me give you the perfect love definition. And you take them here and you say, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Like this is your chance, parents. This is your chance to be able to say, this is real love. And your kids will be like, yeah, but that doesn't, how, how do I, I'm not sure I, how, how does that, what does it have to do with me loving this boy or girl? I, well, you'd go, this is what real love is. And they will walk away frustrated, but at least you didn't blow it. And you were able to say to them, this is real love. You want to know what it is. Don't look any further than God and Christ. <laughs> like that's what we get to do. That's the power of knowing real love that word for showed us is revealed. It's something that is revealed was, was hidden at first, but now we see it. The scriptures make it clear that God loved us before the foundations of the world. This, the Old Testament makes it clear that he loves us because he says he chose Israel, not because they were bigger or strong, but because he loved them. 
But there is no greater showing of the affection of God for his creation than the cross of Christ. It sounds a lot like John 3.16, right? 1 John 4, 1 John 3.16, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. Freedom from the fear of judgment happens this side of eternity, folks. And Jesus says that you've already been judged if you look at Jesus and go, I'm a hard pass. But the beauty of the grace of God is that he keeps calling. He keeps reaching. He keeps pursuing. He keeps chasing. And he keeps saying, you have got to look at Jesus. John is saying what you might think he's saying there. He's saying that this event, the cross of Christ, dwarfs every other showing of affection that might come from God. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 5. He says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Basil Hume says it this way. Most Christians find it easier to believe that God exists than that God loves them. And I can tell you why. It's because we don't hear it from here. See, because we're creatures, we're looking for signs of affection and love from every other place. If God would just give me the perfect this, the perfect that, if he would give me the perfect gift, if he would give me money, if he would give me fame, if he would give me power, if he would give me relationships, if he'd give me the education, if he'd give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, and you have no idea how damaging that view of love from God really is. Because guess what? When those things don't show up in your life, you know who gets the... God does. God becomes the bad guy when he's not giving, 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 giving what you want, but he's given us what we need in Christ. This is how destructive it is when we are looking for other evidences of God's love outside of the love of Christ on the cross. God's gift or God's son? What are you looking at to define what perfect love is? This is the power of the good news we meditate on this, we remain in this, we speak it to each other, and we walk next to one another. 1 John 4.10, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. When I look at the cross, and which is why I believe many people will not look at the cross, because you see our greatest need being taken care of, and that is the wrath of God being poured out on all sin is taken care of completely we don't want to look at the cross because we know that our sin is being dealt with there we don't want to acknowledge our sin but part of looking at the cross is knowing my sin but at the same place and in the same location I see the love of God this is the strangeness of the good news. Is that in the same place where my sin is dealt with, 
I'm also made known that I have been loved way more than I deserve. As we look at the cross, we see those things come together perfectly. As we close this morning, one of my favorite things about John's gospel is how John refers to himself. In John 13, 23, John refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Now, there are a lot of scholars that have written on John, and very, very few would suggest that this is anyone but John. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was sitting next to Jesus. Now, for you and I, some of us may be like, that's fairly arrogant of him, right? To, like, label himself the one whom Jesus loved? Well, if you think about it, there's no truer statement about who John is than that statement. If John had been walking around going, hey, I'm John, the one who loves Jesus. Hey, I'm John, the one who loves Jesus. It's no different than us walking around going, hey, I love God. Look at me. Hey, I love God. Look at me. In fact, it's, it's totally different when John goes, hey, look at me. God loves even me. Like, Jesus loves even me. Like, in some strange way, knowing how messed up I really am, how I would rather see people burned up by fire from heaven than them know the grace of God, Jesus loves even me. There is no truer statement John could make of himself than Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved. And as we look at the rest of John's life, we see someone who walked with no fear. We see a man who was transformed by that love from God. First John really does become all that the gospel of John declares. You and I see what that kind of love looks like in John's gospel. You and I now know how to live because of 1 John and the love that is implied from the gospel of John. Highland, we are loved so we love and what I mean by that is God loved us and what that does is it changes our thoughts on God where we actually begin to hear Jesus' command of love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself we begin to go that's a reality like that could happen Like, I am feeling my heart swell for those around me and my heart swell for you because all I do is sit in knowing and understanding and believing that you love me first. That's the order. Step one, knowing God loved you. Step two, loving God. Step three, loving others. You get that out of whack, I'm telling you, the whole thing comes off the track. Our first invitation is not to love God. Our first invitation is to know we were loved by God. And it's in believing that love, perfect love, you and I find ourselves loving Him more, and we find ourselves loving each other more.
so it has been dealt with for us. Just as those bridge workers worked above those nets and they saw each other and their co-workers fall and they were caught in that net, so we too put our trust in the love of Christ, his perfect love for us. Um, my son Zeke, when he was five years old, I'll never forget it, a neighborhood kid came out <clears throat> and they were wanting to play on the trampoline and they were wanting to, you know, goof off and this kid was probably in fourth grade and Zeke was five. I'm sitting on the back porch listening to them talk and I hear Zeke say as a five-year-old to this fourth grader, hey, do you know what the cross is all about? As a dad, I'm sitting there going, what is he going to say? I'm just worried. I'm like, what have I said? What have we said? What has he heard me say? And the kid's like, nah, don't, I don't know anything. What is it? I'm sitting like this. Zeke says, means God loved us first. And the kid goes, cool. You want to jump on the trampoline? And Zeke was like, yeah. It was that simple. Looking at the cross does not declare our perfect love for God. It actually declares his perfect love for us. And it changes why we do what we do. This morning, I'm asking you, have you put your trust in that perfect love? Or are you still walking of fear or judgment? And if you are walking in fear of the judgment, if you're walking in fear of being rejected and turned away by God, then it may be time for you to seriously consider the cross. To seriously consider the implications of believing that Jesus lived, died, rose again, and will return. That is how his followers anxiously anticipate his return. We don't anticipate his return if we're facing judgment or condemnation. We anticipate his return because we know his perfect love is cast out all fear. I'll be standing over here, and as we have been doing the last several weeks, baptism is available to those of you that would believe on this name Jesus. We'd love to walk that through with you. Um, and if you're at a place where you're like, I simply have questions about this Jesus, I'll be standing right over here as we close together in worship. We will be doing communion together. We will be taking the bread and the juice. And at this time, it's a chance for Christ followers to remember this perfect love that casts out all fear. It's a declaration. It's an announcement. It's a receiving. It's all these beautiful things that we've talked about this morning made very simple through a piece of bread and juice. So when your heart is prepared and you'd like to go to the corners of the room, go and take this meal and remember what Christ has done.